Glad to be with you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 16. You know, it is so good to, to be here this morning, just to be in the very presence of God. You know, God is um, omnipresent, which means his presence is, is everywhere. But there are times where he allows his presence to, to be manifested and known and felt in, in stronger ways than just the fact that he's everywhere. And uh, I think that's happening here this morning where you get, it's just this tangible thing that, that's going on. And um, just the fact that God would allow us into his presence like that is an amazing thing. And it's only by his grace and his mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ that we are able to do that. I'll tell you, when God's presence shows up, things happen. He doesn't show up and allow his, himself to be known just so that we can have warm, tingly feelings running up and down our spine. It's, people are changed when they come into contact with the creator of the universe. And if he has you here this morning, it's not by coincidence or accident or not because you decided to come here. You're here because he wanted you here this morning. He wanted you here in his presence, and there's a reason for that. And so I would encourage you to be aware and be sensitive to what it is that he has you here for. Um, listening to him, what he has to say to you, what he wants to do in you, what he even may be leading you to do. So uh, take advantage of this time that God has here with you this morning. Romans 16, we have been 52 weeks in our series in Romans. We actually started it over a year ago. I think it was might have been March of last year, but if you were to run all the weeks that we spent specifically on Romans, it would be 52 weeks, which is right at a year. And after a year, we are finally to the last chapter. So today we begin the last chapter of Romans. We're going to start in verse 1. So let's all stand together as we <clears throat> read this this morning. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Apennetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Statius, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herod and my kinsmen. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. 
Greet Philologos and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. God, there is truth, powerful, powerful truth contained in your word. God, even in a list of names, Lord, you don't do anything randomly. Uh, God, it's all for a purpose. And God, there is a purpose in what we just read. And Lord, I pray that the truth contained in there would open our eyes to see you, to hear what you have to say to us, God, and that you would change us by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week I confronted one of the biggest issues that people struggle with today and an issue that becomes especially problematic in the church, and that is the issue of fear. And I said that fear is a result, what it boils down to is just not trusting God. I said that it is something that has absolutely no place in the life of a Christian, and um, I showed you why. I explained how we can trust God because He has a plan for each and every uh, life of His people, and that nothing can prevent His purposes from being fulfilled. And we looked in two instances in particular that happened to Paul and to Jesus and learned that until God says otherwise, you are invincible. You are immortal. Nothing can touch you unless God allows it. And if he allows it, we can trust that it is for a good and glorious reason. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This is talking specifically about the love of God. It can't be love from any other source because any source outside of him is imperfect. I love my wife, but I'm still a work in progress, and so my love for her isn't going to be perfect. I love my kids, but no matter how strong my love may be for my children, it is still an imperfect love. The only perfect love is the love that comes from the Heavenly Father. And so in order for fear to be cast out from our lives, we have to be able to grasp just how immense and how perfect his love really is. As a matter of fact, the last part of that verse, 1 John four eighteen, says that the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so there is a direct link between the absence of fear and the love of God. That does not mean that if you struggle with fear that God doesn't love you, love you. It means that if you're struggling with it, then you have not yet fully grasped or received his love for you. And the perfect love of the Father is perfectly displayed in Jesus. I told you last week that because fear is such an issue that so many people struggle with, that it's not something that I should really just address on one Sunday and quickly move on to something else. Um, I hit a nerve with that message last week. I'm telling you now, Satan and his minions are not happy about it. A war was declared on him and the lies that he uses to instill fear into God's people. And the most effective way to combat those lies is to bombard them over and over again with truth. And so we're going to keep doing that. 
And here in the first part of Romans 16, we find yet another way that fear can uh, affect the church. Last week, we dealt mainly with uh, the physical fear, the, the, the fear that something bad is going to happen to you. And if you missed that last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it on the website or, or call the office for a free copy on CD. Because, I mean, with everything that's going on in the world around us right now and in our own country, a lot of people are afraid. But I showed you last week that there is no reason for us to be afraid. And so if you missed that, please go back and listen what the Lord um, has to say in that. Uh, today we're going to look at some other fears that tend to hold us back from living the life that Jesus saved us for. In Romans 16, these words that Paul wrote here are not just a simple greeting. They are drenched with gospel truth, and they present examples of what happens when the love of God gets a hold of someone. There are 27 names that Paul mentions here in this text. And some of these people we know absolutely nothing about other than the brief statements that Paul makes about them here. There are a few others that we do know more about because they're also mentioned in Acts and and some other letters of Paul. But one of the things that stands out here is just incredible diversity of these people. Some of them are wealthy. Some of them are pretty poor. Most of them lived in, in or around Rome, but some, like Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila, they traveled around a lot and lived in different places following the Lord. Some are married, but others, like Phoebe, who was sending this letter from Paul to the church in Rome, she was single. Some are men and some are women. They don't all come from the same race or same economic status. They don't come from the same gender or from the same level of spiritual maturity. Their names were from even from different origins. Some of their names were Roman, some were Greek, and some were Hebrew. Speaking of, I know there are several families in our, our church right now that is uh, expecting a baby. Um, if you're trying to decide on a name, there's a good list of them right there. That you can, you, know, you don't need to look up the baby name website. You got that right there. Personally, I would suggest Rufus. <laughs> you know, I had to be a Roman redneck, right? Augustus Rufus. <laughs> but they're all different. And yet Paul speaks of them with the same love and affection and respect and admiration. And the reason he does is because of something that he says over and over again in here. Nine times he refers to them either as in Christ or in the Lord. This is the way that a person drenched in Jesus talks about his friends. You don't hear people talk like this about others very much today. Usually what you hear more of is if we're going to talk about people, it's usually the negative things that we're going to say about them rather than just a bunch of positive things. You know, I've heard people say before that I don't wear my faith on my sleeve. Be careful about that because the issue isn't about what's on your sleeve. The issue is about what's in your mouth because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
If Jesus isn't there when you talk about others, if you find yourself talking more about someone's weaknesses and failures and, and faults, then it's not a sleeve issue at all. It's, it's a heart issue. Let's let the way that we talk about others be absolutely drenched in Jesus. <clears throat> you know, talking about someone's failures and weaknesses and all their faults, you know what that is. It's gossip. Do you know what the root cause of gossip is? It's fear. I believe it boils down to fear. First thing in your notes, if you're following along there in your guide, gossip comes from three main fears. And it's a fear that tends to be a pretty big issue in any given church. One of those fears is the fear of not being significant. You know, the more that we can make someone else look bad, the better we're going to look in someone's eyes that we're talking to. And the next point, think about this. An orphan, which is what we were apart from Christ, and how we still live until we accept who we are in him, an orphan will always attach his or her significance to how they compare to others. And so if I'm living with an orphan mindset, the worse I can make everyone else look, the better that's going to make me look and the more significance I think I'm going to gain in someone's eyes. The only remedy for removing that fear is receiving the unbelievable love of the Father that we have in Christ. Orphans attach their significance to how they compare to others, but someone who knows and understands what it means to be a son or a daughter of the Father will attach their significance to Jesus. Attach it to Christ. Being in Christ means not only do you receive his righteousness and his standing with God, but it also means that you receive his significance. Your identity is in him and him alone. The only reason that we look for significance in other sources is because we don't know what it means to be in him, to be a favored son or a daughter. I mean, how much more significant can you be than being a favored son or daughter of the Father? You can't. You can't be any more significant than that. Last week I talked about how secure Adam and Eve were in the love of the Father before they rebelled and fell and were cut off from relationship with him. Before they fell, they couldn't be any more significant or, or be attain any higher of a position than they had with the Father, than they had with God. But when they fell, that significance was lost. And as a result of that, one of the first things that they did was start pointing fingers at one another. Last week, I showed you that the first thing that Adam said, the first words out of his mouth, after he was cut off from God was that he was afraid. Fear was the first thing that entered into the absence of that fellowship with God. The second thing he said, it was something negative about Eve. He lost his significance. 
And so he had to look for it in another source. And the closest source to him at that moment was how he compared to Eve. But like I said, Jesus came to restore what was lost in the garden. He won back our significance. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the scripture says that an angel stood at the entrance there, guarding it with a flaming sword. And so in order to get back in the garden, you had to go under the sword. Jesus went under the sword for us. He shed his blood and gained that entrance back into what was lost in the fall. And so now we no longer have to compare ourselves to anyone or point out somebody else's faults so that we'll look better. We can't get any more significant or gain any higher position than we have in him. I mean, come on. If we are significant in the eyes of the Father, who cares what we look like in anyone else's eyes? I mean, really, it's kind of silly if you think about it. Another fear that causes us to to talk bad at others and point out their faults all the time is probably one of the strongest fears that affects how we live, and it is the fear of rejection. The greatest desire of an orphan is to be accepted, to be a part of a group, to be brought into and welcomed into a group, a family. And he or she will do almost anything for it. That's why young people who grow up with, without a dad or without the influence of parents in their lives are so susceptible to, to, to joining up with a gang. I mean, that's that orphan spirit that longs to belong to a group or, or a family. People who talk bad about others, if you notice that there's, in any given church, there's going to be somebody who spends most of their time talking bad about other people. And when they do it, they're going to go to several people to do it because they're building a group around them. They're trying to build this group around them that they can be accepted in. This group right here that I'm saying all this to, they're going to accept me. And their common ground of acceptance is their disdain for whoever it is that they're talking about. But when you know what it means to be accepted by the Father, that burning desire to be accepted is satisfied. Christians should be accepting one another based on the fact that we are so for one another rather than because we are against someone else. I mean, that's ridiculous. Then the third fear that causes us to act like this way, talk like this about others, is directly tied to the fear of rejection, and it's the fear of being known. If we can put the attention on someone else's faults, then it's going to take the attention off of our own faults. The way it's tied to rejection is because we believe that if others know about our faults and our failures and weaknesses, then they won't accept us. We're afraid that they're going to reject us. But the amazing thing about the love of God is that he accepts us and loves us in spite of our faults and failures. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and yet he loves us anyway and was willing to go through a horrific death He was willing to pass under the sword for us. Being in Christ means that I'm no longer identified with my faults and failures. I'm identified with him and his perfection. And when you know that about God, it doesn't really matter then what others find out about you. 
Paul understood this, and that's why he said, I will boast in my weaknesses. You see, the more people see your weaknesses, the more Jesus is glorified because it makes his grace look that much more amazing. Grace isn't all that impressive when it's extended to someone who has it all together or their life is perfect. What makes grace amazing is that it is poured out on those who seem to deserve it the least. Those who try to hide their weaknesses and faults all the time really care more about exalting themselves than they care about exalting Christ in their life. If we want Christ to be exalted more in us, we would be more inclined to let our weaknesses be, be known because it just all the more highlights his grace in our life. And that only happens when we have an understanding of what his grace really means. And when we do come to that revelation, the other result is that we start accepting one another regardless of our faults and failures rather than always pointing them out and and judging them. I'll tell you what, the grace of God should make the church the safest place on earth for people to come to knowing that they're going to be accepted just as they are. These three fears I just talked about are absolutely detrimental to a church body. And we should be combating these fears with every ounce of gospel truth we can discover. Because if if left to grow, these fears will ultimately destroy a church body. Fearful people can be very dangerous people. Dangerous to the unity of the body. In the next part of, the very next part of Romans 16, Paul will actually tell us to keep an eye out for people like that in the church. Something else that jumped out at me when I read this text and all these people that were mentioned was an example of the way that God just completely decentralized his, his power and things about him in ways that had never been done before. What do I mean by that? Well, before Jesus came, things like access to God and his power and and blessings from him and one's standing with God was very centralized, meaning that it all centered and, and was reserved for a small group of people at the top of the hierarchy. Under the old covenant system, not everyone had equal access to the things of God. And at the very top of this centralized structure was the high priest of the temple. He was the only one who was allowed to go into the holy of holies of the temple, the inner room where the very manifest presence of God himself resided. Anyone else go in there, they would die immediately. And so the high priest was looked at with a lot of awe and respect, and he was the holy man, and and no one could attain a level that that he was at. And uh, then there were the lesser ministers in the temple who carried out other tasks. And later came the rabbis who had spent their whole life being schooled in God's law. And so they would spend the rest of their life teaching others about it. And so the priests and the rabbis were viewed as having more access to God, more favor from God, and, and a better standing with God than everyone else. They were put on a very high pedestal. In order for the regular people to get any of those things for themselves, they had to go to these men in order to get it. 
In order to get forgiveness, you had to go to the priest in the temple and, and present to him your, your sacrifice. In order to uh, get a blessing from any of them, you, you had to go to them, the rabbis or the priests, and get them to pray over you or, or to say a special blessing over you. And so it, it was a very top-heavy structure that all depended on those at the top. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he completely decentralized all of those things. Access to God, blessings from God, uh, our standing with him were all now available to everyone and were no longer reserved for just a special group. This is just one of the meanings behind the veil of the temple being torn in two when Jesus died. When he breathed his last breath on the cross, that thick curtain that the priest would go behind that that the, the presence of God was in, that thing was ripped from the very top to the very bottom, which signified that Jesus has made access to the Father available to all who believe in him. The Christians in the early church understood this, and it was one of the things that excited them about being a Christian the most, especially those Jews who believed. They knew that in Jesus, they, just, they had just as much access to the Father as the high priest himself did. They knew they, they had just as much blessing and didn't have to rely on anyone else to receive a blessing from God. They no longer had to go to the priest in order to have their sins forgiven because they knew that Jesus took care of that completely and finally at the cross. They no longer had to rely on these uh, scholars and rabbis to teach them about God's word. They now had the Holy Spirit to guide them. As a matter of fact, they could now understand the Old Testament scriptures better than those scholars who had been schooled their whole life because they now knew the whole point of those scriptures, which was Jesus. They knew that they no longer had to go to the temple in order to be with God. They understood that they were the temple, the very place where the presence of God now resided. And because his presence was now with them, wherever they went, they knew that they were capable of supernatural things. Unfortunately, many people today still have that same old covenant centralized mentality. They tend to think that the pastor and professional ministers have more of those things of God like the high priest did in the Old Testament. That somehow our prayers are going to be answered quicker than anyone else's. Somehow they don't believe that they are as capable of doing big things for the kingdom, big things for God as, as maybe the preacher or the professional staff are. I think that some people wrongly assume that the preacher and the church staff, they, they probably live much better and more obedient lives than everybody else. And so therefore, they've got to have more of God's favor and more of his blessing. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's blessing on your life is not hinged on how good or how bad you are. It's tied solely in, in Jesus. And if you are in him, you have just as much of God's favor as I'm ever going to have. You have all of his favor. You have the favor that Jesus has from the Father. Now, granted, there are 
some messed up preachers out there who would want nothing more for you to believe that they do have more than you do. And they will teach that extensively because it keeps them on a pedestal and feeds their ego. But I'm telling you right now, be careful of men like that. They are what the Bible calls wolves in sheep's clothing. And I always want to do my best to keep you from putting me on any kind of a pedestal like that. I beg you not to do that. Not to think that I've got something of God more than you do. More access to him. Or my prayers answered any quicker. Or that you're going to get a special blessing from me rather than somebody else praying for you or anything like that. Because that, that just denies the finality of what Jesus has done on the cross. Putting a pastor or staff member on a pedestal above everyone else is very dangerous because it sets, sets us up for failure and sets you up for unbelievable disappointment because it is an unrealistic expectation that we can never meet. And we will fall off of that pedestal every single time. And plus, it refuses to acknowledge what you have been given in Jesus Folks, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If your only hope is in Jesus Christ for your standing with God, you have just as much of the Holy Spirit living in you as I do, as Danny does, as the elders of this church do. My prayers don't get answered any quicker than yours do because we both have the same intercessor going before the Father for us. And his name is Jesus. If you and someone else is having any more or higher status with God than anybody else, is it's idolatry. Don't do that. Please don't do that. And here's something else about that. The role of a pastor and the church staff is not to do all the work of the ministry in a church. Ephesians 4.12 says that the pastor's role is to equip the saints. That's you to do the work of ministry in a church. An unhealthy church is one that expects all the professional ministers to be doing the majority of the ministry that goes on in a church. And some of you may think, well, y'all get paid to do that. Well, biblically, we get paid to equip you to do that. That's the biblical role of a pastor and a church leader. Man, it got uncomfortably quiet in here. <laughs> I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You, if you're mad, get mad at God, not me. The best way that me and Danny and the elders can equip you to do that is by continuing to preach the gospel and telling you what all Jesus has done and what it means for you and what you have in him telling you of God's amazing love to the point where you actually start believing it and receive it so much that any fear you had that was holding you back for doing anything for God is completely gone. And that brings us back to the point again. Next point in your notes, fear is the main thing that keeps people from allowing God to use them for great things. 
And most of those fears come from believing a lie. It's the lie that you can't do it, that you don't have enough, that you aren't good enough. And the main thing there is the fear of failure. And then the next one, the fear of failure comes from being too focused on yourself and not focused on Jesus. If my ability to do great things for God depends on how skilled and how qualified I am, then I'm going to be pretty frightened. Because if it depends on that, I'm going to fail. When I was chosen at first to be the pastor of this church, I was absolutely scared to death. And the more I focused on me and my ability to do it, the more fearful I got. I kept thinking about how I'd never been to seminary, and so I wasn't educated enough. How I've never pastored a church before, and so I wasn't experienced enough. Only thing I'd ever known was youth ministry, and so I wasn't qualified enough. I didn't know how I was supposed to come up with a sermon to preach every week, and so I wasn't skilled enough. And the more I focused on me and what I did or didn't have, the more fear began to take hold of me. And it got to the point where I came very close to saying no. I thought, man, it'd be a lot safer if I just stayed with what I know the best and just continued on in youth ministry. But the Lord wouldn't leave me alone about it, and he eventually led me to a scripture that, that changed everything. It's a scripture that I had read many, many times before, but this time it really hit me and completely changed my whole perspective. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29. It'll be up on the screen. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Listen, y'all. The more incapable you think you are of doing something that you feel that maybe God's asking you or calling you to do, that's a pretty good indicator that he is calling you to do it. Because your success in it, all the glory, can only go to him. It can't go to you if you're incapable. And so it all has to go to him. And the last point in your notes, the Holy Spirit in you trumps all your inability. Say, but I don't, it's the Holy Spirit. No, but I don't, no, Holy Spirit. He trumps your weaknesses every time. He trumps your I don't haves every time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is no reason in the world to believe that you can't do something for God unless you believe that your ability to do it depends on your skill, your talent, your experience, your title. And if your confidence starts going to any of those things, that's when you will fall flat on your face every time. I'm telling you, because of what Jesus has done, he has made just as much of himself and his power available to you as he has anyone else in this world. As a matter of fact, he's made it just as available to you as it was to Jesus when he was here. And he 
he went to the cross to make it available to you just as well. He loves you. The Father loves you so much. And all he asks in return is that you trust him. Just trust him. In just a second, I'm going to pray. And we're going to have a time of ministry like we usually do. And there's going to be me and the church staff and some of the church leaders and elders and their spouses. We always come down here on the front rows to pray with people. But in no way does that mean that our prayers are going to be more effective than anyone else's. It's just that there's some people in here who, who don't know anybody else. And so if they know that they are leaders in the church, then they can feel pretty safe that they're not going to get something weird prayed over them. Some of them you know personally real well, and so you feel comfortable going to them. But I'm telling you right now, I want this time, this ministry time that we have every Sunday, to be a time where everyone is getting involved in what the Lord is doing. I want this to be a time where everyone is using the spiritual gifts that God has given them to minister to one another. If you believe in what you have in Jesus and you trust him with it, you'll be able to do that. And so when we have that time of ministry, I want to encourage you, if you know somebody in here and something that they're going through, go pray for them. If there's a word that you just feel you can't get out of your head, that you feel like you're supposed to go tell to somebody, you've got a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, go tell them. God's here for a reason, not just so that we can feel those tinglies that I talked about. It's because he wants to display his goodness, his grace, his power through those who will trust in him. So I encourage you to jump in on what God's doing. I'm telling you what, there's some of you in here, when I talked about being an orphan and having this yearning to belong, there's something missing in your life. And you're looking at every other source in order to itch and satisfy these desires that you have because you haven't received that adoption that the Father has made available to you in Jesus. I'm telling you, all those desires can be satisfied this morning you would turn from everything that you have been running to and turn to him turn to Jesus if that's you I want you to go tell one of these leaders me or somebody else down here at the front so that we can celebrate and rejoice with you and what God is doing in your life but after I pray the praise team is going to come up and if God's leading you to something I encourage you to trust him with it let's pray Lord, it is such a humbling thing to be in the presence of such a great and powerful, loving, gracious, and merciful God. Lord, I thank you right now that you are undoing so much error that so many of us have bought into, that you are casting out fear that has held so many people back for so long. 
So, Lord, again, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you, to give us that revelation of who you are, to be able to receive your love in ways that we never have known it before. God, I pray that your spirit would be alive and active in your people right now. We wouldn't let fear keep us in the boat. We would step out trusting you. So, Lord, I'm asking you to have your way in the remainder of this time. Call those whom you have chosen to be a part of your family. Let there be salvation and freedom in this place today. God, let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.